welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Audrey Kurth Cronin, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Security, Innovation, and New Technology at the School of International Service at American University. Audrey, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. We're roughly a month into the Russian war in Ukraine. What's top of mind for you as you watch this conflict unfold? Well, at the top of my mind is deep concern about the people of Ukraine. And particularly, I remember as a young person visiting Kiev when I was living in Moscow um, in the American embassy and just admiring that city and learning all of the history of what went on in Ukraine. It just really tears me up to watch what is happening with the um, bombardments and the killing of civilians and the inability of civilians to get out through uh, corridors, for example, from Mariupol. This is, it's hard to focus on much of anything else. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm very interested in potential ways of de-escalating this conflict. Yes, a key factor that a lot of analysts point to is the need to leave Putin with some kind of diplomatic off-ramp some way to compromise to resolve the core of the conflict. And reports are trickling out that Ukrainian and Russian officials are involved in negotiations now and are exploring possible armed neutrality arrangements. And you wrote a piece for the Washington Post Monkey Cage blog uh, on neutrality that I want to ask you about. But first, just tell us what armed neutrality is. What, what exactly does that mean in, in your mind? Well, the first thing to mention is that uh, the concept of neutrality is heavily debated among international lawyers and even among countries that call themselves neutral. It's a very loose uh, or it's a, it's a differently interpreted concept in different places. So to speak about neutrality is to talk about a whole series of different ways of um, practice in neutrality, some legal and some simply de facto. So to get to your question, Armed neutrality, and particularly permanent armed neutrality, meaning it's not just in relation to one war, but a status that a country assumes even in peacetime, has a number of different characteristics. It means that a country is armed, has at least defensive arms, and it defends its own borders and sovereign uh, territory. It prevents others from using those uh, assets. You, you're not allowed to have other enemy combatants use your territory to engage in some kind of war. Uh, you're not to join in a war yourself or any hostilities, and um, you're not to join any military alliances. So that's those are kind of the basic general concepts that pretty much everybody who engages with armed neutrality um, agrees to. You also write that neutrality sort of gets a bad rap, partly from historical cases like Belgium, Luxembourg. Uh, you also mentioned Laos during the Vietnam War. What happened in each of those cases and what can they teach us about the current situation? Right. Well, there have been lots of different efforts to neutralize or engage in neutrality by individual states. And the most famous and probably the standard bearer for all neutrals is Switzerland. Switzerland was actually a very powerful um, state. There was a tremendous amount of civil war engaged in between its own cantons, but also the Swiss were well known as being extremely capable soldiers and acted as mercenaries for other states, particularly France. 
And uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, Switzerland was actually occupied by France. But in any case, in 1815, the major powers of the Congress of Vienna declared permanent neutrality for Switzerland. And um, it was initiated by the Swiss, but it was also very strongly uh, in, agreed to by all the signatory powers of the Congress of Vienna. And as a result, Switzerland has been uh, unattached to economic and military uh, alliances. And it's been a very successful case. But there were other cases that tried to use the same approach, and they had mixed degrees of success. So another complication is there's a big difference between neutrality that is sought by a state and neutrality that is imposed by other states. So the concept when it is imposed is usually called neutralization. And um, it's different from having a voluntary status that a state tries to uh, abide by itself. So Belgium uh, was neutralized also by the major European powers in 1831. And in the original agreement, it was only to have limited defensive forces. Um, and also Luxembourg had a similar agreement in about 1867. And both of those countries maintained a neutrality, which was uh, uh, imposed by external powers throughout most of the 19th century. But then with the outcome of the First World War, you'll remember that both of them had their neutrality grossly violated by the Germans. They had some defenses, but um, they were woefully armed, frankly. And so uh, there was very little ability for them to defend themselves from that kind of major power. So as a result, Belgium and Luxembourg are kind of like the poster children of people who argue that neutrality is a bad idea. Because rather than looking at the uh, almost century of successful um, neutrality, or at least the decades of successful neutrality for both of them and, and other wars in which their neutrality actually helped, uh, people look at the outbreak of the First World War and see them as almost uh, weak and inviting the Germans to um, engage in aggressive action. So that's one of the reasons why neutrality has a really bad rap. Your first book, Great Power Politics and the Struggle Over Austria, 1945 to 1955, sheds some light on how we might think about armed neutrality. Uh, can you tell us about that history and how it might apply here? Sure. Well, you'll remember that after the Second World War, that Austria was occupied in the same way that Germany was. So there were four powers. Uh, Great Britain, the United States, France, and the Soviet Union, and they each had their own zone of Austria in the same way that happened in Germany. And then between 1945 and 1955, there were vigorous negotiations, as also was happening in Germany, to try to come to a resolution as to what to do with that state. And um, those negotiations dragged on. There was a tremendous amount of um, friction among the major powers there seemed to be no progress being made at all. It just seemed as if, um, although the Western powers, the three Western powers, wanted to withdraw and leave Austria an independent state, um, the Soviet Union did not want to withdraw its troops, and, and it became a kind of an East-West argument. So in 1955, finally, and you'll remember that Stalin died in 1953, in 1955, a delegation of Austrians led by their chancellor, Julius Raab, 
went to Moscow with a proposal that they would become permanently neutral. And there were a number of other concessions that they uh, made in return for uh, the Soviet Union withdrawing its troops and um, the Western powers also withdrawing. So under the Austrian State Treaty, which was signed in 1955, that's what happened in Austria. All of the powers withdrew. Austria was an armed neutral after that. And it had to be very careful about how it dealt both with uh, the Eastern countries and the Western countries had to be uh, somewhat at arm's length. Now, another important thing to remember about the Austrian case is that it was not done in isolation. There was an enormous amount of focus upon Germany and whether Germany would rearm. The uh, Stalin in particular was very worried about that. Khrushchev decided when he took power after Stalin's death, um, he decided that what would be in Russian interests would be a neutral corridor to go down through Europe from the Scandinavian countries and straight through Germany, he hoped, and uh, through Austria. And this was partly an effort on his part to, to try to achieve that. He was hoping that by neutralizing, if you will, neutralizing Austria, that the Germans would come to the same uh, resolution. But as you know, of course, under Chancellor Adenauer, the Germans uh, in West Germany rearmed, and um, and of course the country was divided in two in a very brutal way throughout the Cold War, um, and there was friction and tremendous tension and um, a lot of major crises as a result of what was going on in Germany. You also mentioned in the article Finland, and that's a sort of special case of uh, neutrality during the Cold War with respect to NATO and so on. I remember um, in 2014 when the crisis over Crimea first happened, Henry Kissinger mentioned Finlandization as a possible uh, resolution. Can you talk a little bit about that case? That's a really sensitive point because the Finns hate the word Finlandization. And the question of whether the Finns are neutral or not is another complicated question because they did not actually sign a treaty that said that they were neutral. What happened was they lost a brutal war to the Soviet Union, the Winter War, which happened between 1939 and 1940. And uh, I, there were some 600,000 Russian troops that invaded Finland and the losses on the part of the Russians were, if I recall correctly, something like six to one. So the Finns fought bravely. They were very amazingly impressive um, uh, soldiers fighting for their own territory. There are some, it resonates somewhat with what I see in Ukraine now, but the Russians paid such an enormous price that um, they came to an agreement. They had defeated the Finns, but the Finns agreed uh, under the Treaty of Moscow and they ceded considerable parts of their territory, about 10 or 11% of Finland along the border with uh, Russia. And they also leased some key uh, naval assets, particularly the Porkala Naval Base. Um, and so it was a coerced type of agreement and arrangement. And I, you know, I don't know that it's, I don't know that that history is something that the Finns feel qualifies as, um, neutralization so much as an arrangement with a, a kind of an overwhelming and overweening major power uh, to its east. Uh, you also point out something important in the article that 
you know, armed neutrality doesn't necessarily mean the state in question um, has robbed itself of its sovereignty. They can still join um, economic and trade organizations and, and so on. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. Actually, neutrality can actually can strengthen a state's sovereignty, particularly if it's a state that is under threat. So it certainly was the case with Austria. Austria had um, was divided up into four, and for it to regain its territorial sovereignty, it had to agree to, in particular, um, very harsh terms on the part of the Soviet Union. Austria gave up a huge amount of reparations. Um, it, it wasn't that it was easy, and it, it wasn't an easy status to maintain either. They had to be very careful throughout the Cold War not to be seen as leaning one way or the other. But in that case, at least, neutrality greatly increased the Austrians' control over their own territory. It really depends on what the exact terms are of the neutrality. So it's a we could have an army of international lawyers here in our conversation, John, and they would all have different interpretations of what neutrality means in different cases. And apart from what I mentioned as the core ideas of permanent armed neutrality. Different countries interpret it different ways. For example, Sweden's neutrality is more of a practice. It's um, more of a political neutrality. So much depends upon, if, if we're thinking about Ukraine, much depends upon what exactly the terms of that agreement would be. If Ukraine were able to maintain strong uh, military forces and the ability to protect its own territory um, and as is the case with many other neutral powers, able to buy arms from whomever it wished, that kind of neutrality might be something that um, would serve Ukraine's interests. But what really worries me, and I think it's a serious obstacle, is this talk about Ukraine denazification and demilitarization. Those two terms used by Putin would put Ukraine in an extremely undesirable situation would probably prevent them from protecting themselves and um, could, in the worst case, make Ukraine just another vassal state of uh, Russia. That would be an undesirable outcome. So we have to be very careful. This is a tricky concept. There are no kind of magic answers here. The negotiations have to be very carefully engaged in in order to protect Ukraine's interests. And in particular, They've already lost portions of their territory in the Donbass, or at least they're, they're fighting over them in the Donbass region and also uh, with respect to Crimea. So um, that the, the future of those pieces of territory will be at the very heart of what it means to have a neutral Ukraine, because that's the question of what its sovereign borders are. Yes, I understand that the the question of those territories is under negotiation now, and it's they're also uh, my I understand from reports they're discussing this this possibility of neutrality, and even Russian officials have mentioned cases like Sweden and Finland and Austria as possible models. Um, what is your sense of Putin's openness to armed neutrality? Well, you know, there are two things here. First is what Russian officials are saying. Yes, there's been some talk about that type of neutrality on these various models, and particularly the Austrian model. 
And that gives some hope for a resolution and a way to save the lives of many Ukrainian civilians. But on the other hand, Putin seems unwilling to think about anything except an unmilitarized Ukraine. He keeps using the word demilitarized. Um, I'm not sure I've seen movement in his viewpoints with respect to neutrality. So I'm encouraged that there seems to be some discussion going on, but I think we have to be very careful not to be unrealistic. Putin does not seem likely to um, to want to change his mind. If there is an agreement, uh, it will be another question as to whether it's accepted by Putin. And I'm not sure that any of us can answer that question. But it, But the Russians are not making the kind of progress that I think Putin expected. And my opinion is that morale among the Russian army is low, uh, particularly as they continue to take casualties. This could potentially change Putin's calculation, but I think it's probably too early to tell. Yeah, so it seems like the challenge of uh, the military operation may back Russia into a corner and, and maybe possibly uh, have to accept some kind of armed neutrality. Um, do you have any thing to say about how such negotiations should be carried out? Uh, what makes sense in terms of who, who ought to mediate? Uh, what kind of assurances would have to be involved from other parties? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think to have a country mediating that has some experience with neutrality would be a good idea. My personal view is that the Swiss would be the natural um, people to understand the various ways that neutrality has been interpreted and would be great interlocutors. Um, I don't have any strong opinions. I think just about anyone who's trying to negotiate, I mean, the OSCE played an important role in the Minsk Accords, um, although I don't consider them to have been a success now, of course. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there are a large number of people who have good experience in mediating and um, I'd particularly support uh, the Swiss given their role as kind of a standard bearer of neutrality. As we mentioned, there's also some discussion of uh, the territories in the Donbass and whether they'll have some measure of independence and whether Ukraine will recognize Russia's capture of Crimea. Um, do you have anything to, to say on those points and how they may or may not impact an ultimate neutrality deal? Well, I think that's a key question for the Ukrainians. You know, the Putin has declared Luhansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics. I guess that was in last month on the 21st of February. And that's an offensive thing to do to a country that considers those territories as part of their sovereign territory. This is this is something that I don't have a lot to say on because it's it would have to be a key negotiating point. The question is whether the Ukrainians would find enough, enough security in a neutrality agreement that it would be more desirable than regaining their sovereign territory. And I can't answer that. Only the Ukrainians can. So that would bring me to, the, to a point that I really want to emphasize strongly, John, which is that you cannot have an agreement that is not eagerly sought and accepted by the country itself. There was a long tradition of imposing neutrality. And uh, all of the experiences that we've had since uh, the early 20th century indicate that imposed neutrality almost never works. 
so for example, the good case, uh, the, um, the kind of tragic case actually of imposed neutrality that was kind of reluctantly accepted was Laos in 1962, and that was a major failure. Audrey Kurth Cronin, I really appreciate you talking with us today. It's been a pleasure, John. Thank you.